Good morning. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute and to Cato's 15th annual Constitution Day Symposium. Um, I'm Roger Pilon. I'm director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host for today's program. Uh, let me also welcome uh, those who are uh, viewing us through the uh, live streaming, Cato's live streaming. Um, <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, once again this year, uh, we've got a full program. Uh, we'll be reviewing the big decisions uh, from the Supreme Court last term, uh, such as they were in this most unusual of terms. Um, and uh, the, uh, we'll be looking at the cases coming up. Uh, for a more detailed discussion of both the last term and the cases coming up, uh, you uh, will find it in the new Cato Supreme Court Review, hot off the presses. Uh, and for those of you who are viewing us on live streaming, um, this, for the first year, uh, will be available, the review, uh, on our website at Cato, uh, www.cato.org under publications. So after the program is over, uh, you can go there and uh, pick up a copy and, and download uh, the review. Uh, and we'll be closing today's program with the 15th annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture this year, given by an old friend of Cato's. Um, uh, we've published four of his books, and they are available outside. Um, the um, newest member of the um, uh, Arizona Supreme Court, uh, Justice Clint Bolick. Uh, we hold this uh, symposium each year to mark the day the framers of the Constitution finished their work in Philadelphia and sent the document they just drafted out to the states for ratification reflecting a vision of liberty through limited government. The founders first set forth 11 years earlier in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the Constitution uh, sought to establish a more perfect union. Much has happened over the ensuing uh, 229 years, of course, some of it good, such as the completion of the Constitution, so to speak, through the addition of the Civil War amendments some of it far from good, such as the major reinterpretations of the document without benefit of constitutional amendment that took place during the New Deal, which undermined the founders' idea of liberty through limited government. Uh, indeed, the critique of that constitutional inversion has animated our work here at the center, and uh, from, from its inception, and it would be a constant throughout uh, today's program. To give you an overview of the program, let me introduce the man who's largely responsible for putting it together uh, and for editing the review uh, that you have in your hands. Ilya Shapiro, um, who will moderate this first panel, uh, is a senior fellow in Constitutional Studies at Cato, the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review, and the coordinator of Cato's highly regarded amicus brief program. He's a graduate of Princeton, the London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago Law School. After law school, he clerked for Judge E. Grady Jolly uh, of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and then practiced law in Washington with Cleary Gottlieb and Patton, uh, Patton Boggs. Just before joining Cato, Elia served as a special assistant advisor um, in the, to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues. He's published widely as a frequent guest on radio and TV, and he lectures at law schools across the country. I'll turn the program over to Ilya now, uh, and I'll return to moderate our third panel, and then again at the conclusion 
of our regular program to introduce Justice Bullock. Uh, so for now, please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thanks, Roger. I'm uh, delighted to be back. Uh, this is the 15th volume of the Cato Supreme Court Review, the nation's first in-depth critique of the Supreme Court term just ended, plus a look at the term ahead. It's the ninth one of these uh, that I've done, uh, and some things get easier, um, but it's always uh, uh, remarkable to show up uh, this morning and to see the stack of these things that, that we produce in about a month uh, over the summer, a very different kind of process than the typical student law review. Uh, we release this in conjunction with this symposium every day, less than three months after the previous term has ended and about two weeks before the next one begins, and we are proud of the speed with which we publish uh, the tome, asking leading scholars and practitioners to produce thoughtful, readable commentary of serious length on short deadlines. So I'm grateful that so many people agree to my unreasonable demands. Um, and we're proud of its accessibility, at least as far as the court's opinions allow. Um, this is not a typical law review, as I've said, uh, whose submission's esoteric prolixity is matched only by their footnotes' abstruseness. This is much more readable, I hope you'll find. It's a book intended for everyone from lawyers and judges to educated laymen and interested citizens. We run a tight ship on Constitution Day, so please uh, uh, keep track of the panel start and end times. I want to thank uh, David Lampo and the design team, Linda Asu and the conference team, Trevor Burris, my right-hand man and the managing editor of the Supreme Court Review, uh, and Anthony Grusdis, who you might see running around. He made his rookie debut last year, uh, also as the star of Cato's softball team, uh, and this year he certainly did not have a sophomore slump. Um, Neither the review nor the symposium would be possible without them uh, or with the, uh, without the interns and associates uh, that do a lot of the thankless tasks um, that I am uh, particularly grateful for. I reiterate our hope that this collection of essays uh, will secure and advance the Madisonian first principles of our Constitution, giving renewed voice to the framers' fervent wish that we have a government of laws and not of men. In so doing, we hope also to do justice to a rich legal tradition in which judges, politicians, and ordinary citizens alike understand that the Constitution reflects and protects the natural rights of life, liberty, and property and serves as a bulwark against the abuse of government power. In these troubled times, when the people feel betrayed by the elites, legal, political, corporate, and otherwise, it's more important than ever to remember our proud roots in the Enlightenment tradition. Before I introduce our panel, uh, I will mention that uh, those of you who are trying to get online with devices use the Cato Network, and the password is Give Me Liberty, capitalizing each of those words, G-M-L, Give Me Liberty. Uh, if you are tweeting, if you look, see me looking at my uh, phone, it's not because I'm setting my fantasy football lineup. I'm paying attention to Twitter, uh, so please feel free to use the hashtag. I'm going to audible this. We came up with some sort of ungainly hashtag. Uh, you can use that if you want, if you've heard of it, but really go hashtag Cato Constitution, which is a good reference to our pocket constitutions. This is a special commemorative uh, Shapiro wedding pocket constitution with uh, our names and the date on the back. My wife's a very tolerant lady. Josh Blackman actually spoke at the wedding, which was held here on the roof uh, of Cato and gave a wonderful reading.
reading on the framers and love. In fact, if you Google framers and love, you can watch a video of my wedding. Uh, all right, our first panel today has a curious title, Civil Rights Question Mark. That's because the cases it covers are from distinct areas of law, uh, executive power over immigration, the Equal Protection Clause applied to racial preferences, and how to use the one-person, one-vote standard to draw state legislative districts. Yet many people would tie the underlying policy areas together, immigration, affirmative action, voting rights. These are all broadly civil rights issues of a sort, right? Uh, and Cato hardly ever bucks conventional wisdom, right? Uh, anyway, here to unpack these cases and show how they vindicate civil rights, or not, uh, are three people well-versed in the field. Their bios are in your packet, so I'll just give a brief intro. First, Amy Wax is the Robert Munheim Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania. Her work addresses issues in social welfare law and policy, as well as the relationship of the family, the workplace, and labor markets. Current works in progress include articles on same-sex marriage, disparate impact theory and group demographics, rational choice and family structure, and the law and neuroscience of deprivation. Her most recent book is Race, Wrongs, and Remedies, Group Justice in the 21st Century. She has received the A. Leo Levin Award for Excellence in an Introductory Course and the Harvey Levin Memorial Award for Teaching Excellence. As an assistant to the Solicitor General in the late 80s and early 90s, Amy argued 15 cases in the Supreme Court. She will cover Fisher versus UT Austin, too. Thank you very much for inviting me here. Uh, I've just I've come down with some kind of virus in the past uh, day. I don't think I got it from Hillary. I've been hanging out in a basket far, far from uh, where she's been, so uh, I don't think I can blame her. But if I do step out for a second uh, during the panel, forgive me. So the Fisher versus University of Texas affirmative action case has a long history and has twice been to the Supreme Court. So before grappling with the latest iteration, I'm just going to give a brief summary. Under Challenge and Fisher, which is a case first fi uh, filed in 2008, is the system that the University of Texas, uh, a public university, uses to choose undergraduates for admission. After the Supreme Court invalidated their system, their race-based system in Hopwood v. Texas in 1996, the school moved to a race-blind admissions process. Dissatisfied with the results, for example, the percentage of blacks was around 4% under that system, the te Texas legislature stepped in to create the so-called 10% plan, which guaranteed a place at the Texas flagship for the top 10% of every high school in the state. And given the demographics and the semi-segregation of high schools, this did increase the degree of racial diversity uh, to about 6% for blacks, much more for Hispanics. In 2004, the Supreme Court decided the University of Michigan affirmative action case, the famous Grutter and Gratz cases, which were viewed as liberalizing the affirmative action standard for higher education and of course set the paradigm for future cases. That was a 5-4 decision, uh, the majority written by Justice O'Connor with Justice Kennedy in dissent. And the touchstones there were recognizing that achieving diversity in higher education was a legitimate pedagogical interest, could be a compelling interest under the strict scrutiny standard of the Equal Protection Clause, and deference was due to educators on that that the use of race is permitted as advancing that goal, but also that whatever use uh, was 
advance had to be narrowly tailored to the goal. So those were sort of the touchstones set out by Grutter. In the wake of this, Texas decided to supplement its 10% plan with a race-conscious, holistic, individualized admissions piece by which it would choose about 25% of its undergraduates. And although the record is spotty on this and many other facts, which is one of the problems with the recent decision, there did appear to be a very modest increment in the number of underrepresented minorities through this PIA holistic piece. About 60 blacks in a very big university, maybe around 130 Hispanics. Abigail Fisher challenged this in 2008. She was a failed applicant to Texas. And eventually, the case made its way up to the Supreme Court in 2013 with Justice Kennedy writing and purporting to apply the Grutter paradigm, right? All the touchstones in Grutter, the deference, the narrow tailoring, et cetera, the strict scrutiny. And the result of that was, according to the record, this, this system does not pass muster. We are sending it back down to the lower court for more fact-finding, right? So case was remanded. Remanded to see particularly whether the race-based piece really added anything significant to the diversity already achieved by the 10% plan. That opinion was seen as applying Grutter maybe even more strictly than O'Connor had done in the Michigan case. And some commentators, including me, thought at the time that the holistic piece was doomed, would not survive, because the race-neutral 10% plan was achieving a lot of diversity, proving that race-neutral means could be used and race-conscious means were really not necessary. But that's not how it played out. On remand, the Fifth Circuit put its imprimatur of approval on the holistic piece. The case went up again to the Supreme Court. And that is where we are today. So what about this decision? In a closely divided decision, indeed, Kagan was recused, so it was 4-4, Kennedy writing again, the Fifth Circuit's decision was affirmed over a very passionate dissent by Justice Olito. Now, there's a lot that can be said about this decision. We could be here all day talking about its flaws and its shortcomings, but since our time is limited, I'm just going to touch on a few points. First, although claiming to apply strict scrutiny to the race-based process, Kennedy, who's usually hawkish on affirmative action, actually adopts an astonishingly lax and deferential approach, and Alito points this out, interestingly. He says there's something really perfunctory about this decision. Kennedy just seems bored with the whole thing. He seems like he's just throwing in the towel on university-based, race-based affirmative action. Much of the trouble, I think, stems from the original sin of the deference standard, right? What the court said in Grutter about how educrats, the people who are running the railroad, get a tremendous amount of deference on the need for diversity, the amount of diversity, how diversity is achieved, and the like, notwithstanding all this strict scrutiny talk and narrow tailoring rhetoric. Now, so what is the university allowed to get away with in the recent Fisher case? 
Well, all key questions are answered in effect with feel-good generalities and with very few facts and very little precision. The court never explains, and Texas never explains, how diversity actually improves education. No specifics are given. No evidence is offered. Never says how much diversity is necessary. This critical mass concept is never defined of how much diversity is a sufficient critical mass, never quantitated. And although Texas complained in its court filings about the lack of diversity at the classroom level and about not getting the right kind of minorities, one of the things they said is, well, we're not getting the child of two Dallas doctors. We're getting sort of a lower class of minorities, and we want more of a spectrum and, and peddling back from a lot of these assertions in some of the submissions of the Supreme Court. They never really justify either in showing that they're not getting what they want or in telling us how much classroom diversity they seek to achieve. So it's all very vague, very abstract, very amorphous. It mounts to trust us, okay? So what can we say about the implications, uh, very briefly, of this decision? First, as I said, one is left with the distinct impression that the legal standard, despite appearing stringent and making stringent noises, grants virtually limitless discretion and authority to university officials uh, in injecting race into decisions as long as diversity is, is cited as this pedagogical goal, right? And they're able to sort of hide the ball with discretionary and holistic criteria uh, that are uh, apparently, you know, fairly elastic, right? I think the record is devoid of many critical facts. The court allows it to be devoid of many critical facts, but the court seems unconcerned about the spotty record. And Kennedy, in fact, goes out of his way to excuse the spotty record with what I consider to be some highly questionable reasoning. The court's longstanding ban on quotas, he says, for choosing minorities means that Texas doesn't have to define the term critical mass in any precise way. Well, that is a complete non sequitur. I, you could define the goal without using quotas to achieve the goal. Well, I could go on and on about the heuristic statements in this opinion, uh, but I won't. Secondly, as with many pro-affirmative action decisions in the lower courts and the Supreme Court, the Fisher decision focuses exclusively on the supposed benefits of affirmative action while, in effect, ignoring its costs. The equation is entirely one-sided. And of course, as a matter of doctrine and jurisprudence, this makes no sense, because if the standard is a compelling interest, the compelling interest being advanced is a matter both of the positives and the negatives. They have to be put together and netted out. Yet more and more evidence is accumulating that there are real costs to the beneficiaries themselves of affirmative action. So for example, a study out of Duke past couple of years, reveals that minority undergraduates drop out of hard science majors at a far higher rate at Duke than white men. 58% of blacks who start out in science drop out as opposed to 8% of white men. And this is correlated with incoming SATs and credentials. And the students say, the courses are too hard for us. Apart from the difficulties of just being less prepared, there is evidence of this so-called mismatch effect. Students with particular abilities do even worse when they go to school with people 
of higher ability than if they would go to school with people with whom they are matched. So that's the mismatch effect and well documented. Stepping back, I think it also behooves us to ask far broader systemic questions about the significance of Fisher and the A, the affirmative action, its sanctions. How much difference is university affirmative action going to make in the real world? And I think the answer to that has to be very little. I understand that competitive universities have outsized influence, that their graduates uh, are very important, perhaps more important than they should be, right? But the fact is, number one, the AA jurisprudence has involved public universities under the Equal Protection Clause. Technically, private universities are not covered by this. In Bakke, assertions were made over, under the statute, Title VI, that applies to private universities, but the court has not really developed its AA cases, affirmative action cases, under that. So, in effect, Private universities are at this point free to do what they want, and they do what they want, right? Another important observation is that even if the court had formally invalidated Texas's plan, university admissions types can easily find a way around it. And they are currently finding a way around affirmative action bans in a number of states where affirmative action is banned. Now, why is that? Admissions committees are very good at obfuscation. It's not that hard to produce diversity using other criteria than race, which are good proxies for race, the usual litany of hardships, geography, interest profiles, and activities. And the score comparisons are really unavailing because what they will tell you is, well, we don't place that much emphasis on grades and scores. And the amorphous decision-making process is hard to challenge in the absence of an internal whistleblower and a smoking gun. Now, we can see this in the lack of success, the signal lack of success that Asian superachievers are having in their lawsuits against places like Harvard and Yale. It's really not going anywhere. In fact, university admissions is now a monoculture. It is a monolith with no dissenting voices. And it's really more than that. In our politicized and polarized partisan moment, AA has become a litmus test for virtuous right thinking, and no dissent is allowed. And if you doubt that, try being an academic who goes up against affirmative action. I've tried it. Uh, I just uh, am no longer invited uh, to in decision-making roles here. Now, this may partly explain why Kennedy is so lax and indifferent, why we, there is that feeling here of throwing in the towel. I think Kennedy is really influenced and sensitive to the opinions and fashions of the upper echelon legal circles in which he travels, right? And they believe that AA is a necessity and an absolute good, right? And... It is the added benefit of allowing influential, educated people to avoid confronting and thinking about the pronounced racial disparities in achievement and learning, which go all up and down the education system and our society. So the elites can hold two sort of Orwellianly contradictory thoughts in their mind. One is the conceit that blacks are academically as qualified and prepared for competitive institutions as everybody else. And don't try suggesting that blacks are less prepared. That is a forbidden thought. 
But at the same time, affirmative action is absolutely necessary, and anybody who opposes it is misguided, racist, or evil, right? Don't know how we can square those two. But most important, the obsession with AA is a sideshow that deflects attention from a much larger problem. I didn't know this, but only 2% of colleges admit fewer than 25% of their applicants. Only another quarter admit fewer than half. Most universities do not have competitive admissions. The bigger problem, the real crisis, is that only about 10, maybe 15% of black high school students are even considered college ready at all, let alone for competitive institutions. There is a pervasive lack of the basic skills that are necessary to do any kind of job. And just to drive this home, I want to tell you about something that I've been looking at recently, uh, which is quite striking and, and rarely, I think, investigated. The military is an important source of training and a conduit to a range of jobs in our economy that don't require college. And the military has long used this standardized test, the Armed Forces Qualifying Test, AFQT, as a screening device even for admission to any part of the service. 39% of black test takers score below the minimum cutoff to even get into the military as compared to 16% of whites. And only 18% of black qualifiers score high enough to train for the top tiers of technical jobs or elite service, compared to 43% of whites. Now, the standards here are nowhere near as high as for entrance to even a mildly competitive university or, or institution of, of postgraduate education. They only reflect basic skills and knowledge, but I think the numbers reveal the critical gaps in our society, the ones that are really holding minorities back. I submit that that is where our energy should be focused and our concern should be focused, but I think that cases like Fisher and the obsession with the Supreme Court's affirmative action jurisprudence effectively distracts from these concerns. Thank you. Thank you for that, uh, and uh, thank you for stepping in when the author of the article on Fisher in our volume, Peter Kersenow, a member of the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, uh, was unable to uh, make it to present it. Uh, next, we have my good friend and sometime co-author, Josh Blackman, apparently standing right behind me, uh, <laughs> who is an associate professor uh, at the Houston College of Law and an adjunct scholar at Cato. He is the author of the critically acclaimed Unprecedented, the Constitutional Challenge to Obamacare, uh, and the imminently forthcoming Unraveled, Obamacare, Religious Liberty, and Executive Power. Uh, come back for the book forum on that in two weeks. Josh has also authored over two dozen law review articles, and his commentary has appeared in all the major national publications. Perhaps most importantly, Josh is the founder of Fantasy SCOTUS, the premier Supreme Court fantasy league. Uh, Josh will be channeling Justice Scalia as he discusses President Obama's executive actions on immigration uh, in United States versus Texas, and I will be nominating his uh, essay in that regard, a uh, uh, faux opinion, as it were, uh, uh, for the Green Bags Exemplary Writing Award. So uh, any of you who have votes in that category, please uh, uh, second that. Uh, 
competition's rigged. It's rigged. Um, it's a special treat to be here. Uh, my first time at the Cato Institute was in 2007 when Ilya had his first gig as the editor-in-chief of the Supreme Court Review. It was his first day. And it's somewhat surreal to think that you know, less than a decade later, I was sitting where you're sitting, and now I'm up here. So I, for all the young people in the room, there is hope. And uh, if you work hard, uh, there is rewards even in this city. It's true, even here. Um, my talk today is on a bizarre case, United States versus Texas. As I'm sure you all know, this was the challenge to the president's executive action on immigration. Now you're saying, wait a minute, Josh, how are you here talking about the case? There was no decision. The entire decision was eight words. The, the, the decision's affirmed by an equally divided court. So what I tried to do was imagine, you know, John Lennon, right? Imagine what could have been had Justice Scalia been here. When the case was granted, there were five justices, I think, who would have invalidated the program. By the time it was decided, there were only four left. So on page 79 of your, opinion, of your book, what you'll find is actually a mock opinion that I drafted in my best Scalia voice, although I cannot do justice to his tone, of how this case could have been resolved. This case, more than any other, I think represents a perfect storm of unconstitutional executive action. It represents a very dangerous pattern. The president wants a bill to be passed. Congress says no. Then the president takes an action that looks very much like the statute Congress rejected. This is a case where myself and Ilya agree with underlying policy. That is, we agree with the president's immigration bills. Where we part company is on the legality. And in fact, I'd like to praise Cato because Cato simultaneously argues that this is good policy, but bad law. And I don't know many think tanks would actually be willing to entertain that diversity of thought. So let's take a step back and begin with the DREAM Act, OK? What is the DREAM Act? This was a bill that would have given a pathway to citizenship for the DREAMers, certain minors who came to the country with that status and then stayed on, graduated from high school, graduated from college, were upstanding people. The DREAM Act was a good bill, in my opinion. It would have given them a pathway to citizenship. These people were here through no fault of their own. The DREAM Act passed the Democrat-controlled House representatives, but it was filibustered in the Senate. And people forget, but there were several Democrats who joined that filibuster. At the time, the Democrats had 60 votes in the Senate. So what happened? About a year after the DREAM Act failed in Congress, President Obama announced the first of his executive actions in immigration known as DACA, D-A-C-A, and the acronyms matter, so please bear with me. DACA was Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. What this bill, I'm sorry, I call it a bill, what this policy did was to put on hold the deportation of roughly 1.5 million dreamers through a practice known as deferred action. What is deferred action? Basically, it means we will not put you at the top of the list of prioritization for removal, right? You're not here legally. You have no status. But unless you do something really stupid or we change our minds, we're not going to remove you. That wasn't the biggest problem here. The biggest problem was this policy granted something known as lawful presence. Now, what is lawful presence? It doesn't mean you're here legally, but it does allow you to receive a host of benefits that uh, 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 are basically authorized by the Attorney General and now the Homeland Security Department. The key benefit therein is work authorization. So you're not here legally, but you can work. You can earn an, a, a, a free living. Uh, uh, you have to pay taxes. You get Social Security and a host of other benefits. All right? What happened after DACA was enacted? 
there frankly wasn't much outrage. And, and this is somewhat surprising, but the only people who filed suits, people like Joe Arpaio and others, uh, uh, there wasn't much serious litigation that followed the DACA suit. So in my mind, Congress perhaps acquiesced to that uh, wrongly in my mind. Fast forward a couple years. The so-called Gang of Eight bill, right? This was, this was Marco Rubio's uh, bet noir, right? This is, what, this is what took him down. The so-called Comprehensive Immigration Bill that would have given a pathway to citizenship for, what, 11 million aliens who are not here legally. The bill, in that case, managed to pass the Senate due to the Gang of Eight compromise. However, it went to the House. The House had, in fact, a majority of votes to back it. But due to the untimely defeat of Eric Cantor in his primary by a guy named Bratt, uh, Speaker Boehner said, you know what? I'm not bringing this bill up for a vote. This will kill my members to have this vote take place. So the, do I'm sorry, the Gang of Eight bill never even came up for a vote in the House of Representatives. Later that day, in the Rose Garden, President Obama appeared. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, if Congress will not act, I will. Where Congress will not take action, I will act. Okay, so what happened after that? Throughout the summer of 2014, the Homeland Security Department gave the president nearly 60 iterations of an immigration policy to go further and further. And every time DHS gave him a policy, Obama said, no, 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 doesn't go far enough. Keep going, keep going. He was disappointed. When his lawyer said, Mr. President, this is what we can do, no, no, go further. Finally, on November 14th of 2014, about a week and a half mm -hmm. after the midterm elections, the president appeared in the White House for a speech, not a balcony, but <laughs> at least in the grand hallway, where he announced a new policy known as DAPA. There was DACA, now there's DAPA. DAPA stands for Deferred Action for Parents of Americans and Lawful Permanent Residents, a mouthful indeed. DAPA would have granted deferred action status to roughly four to five million aliens who had US citizen children. Um, to disabuse the anchor baby myth, if you come to the United States and you have a child, your child is in fact a citizen. However, the parent does not get citizenship right away. The child must turn 21 before they can petition for a change of status. Obama said, no, no, that, that, that's not fair. So if you come here and have a child who's a US citizen and you're not a criminal or whatever, we will give you deferred action and we will defer your deportation and oh, by the way, give you work authorization so you can come out of the shadows, right? You come out of the shadows, this, this beautiful image of lightness. Shortly after, I think maybe two weeks after um, DAPA was announced, Texas, by, joined by eventually 26 other states, filed a lawsuit. And I should note, kudos to uh, Ilya and my good friend Roger, Cato was one of the first groups to file an amicus brief in the district court. It's very rare that Cato actually does a brief in the district court. But we realized very, very early on, this case was big and had to great paces. We, we wrote that brief in maybe 72 hours. It was a, it was a quickie. But I thought very uh, significant. Texas asserted a number of claims. They asserted that this was a policy that needed to go through notice and comment rulemaking. They asserted that this was a, a contract to law. But they also raised a third issue, an issue which is the subject of my piece for the review, the take care clause. Now, how many of you study the take care clause in law school? Okay, other, other, other than the other Ilya, uh, that, that'd be Ilya Soman, no one raised their hand. The Constitution imposes on the president a duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Historically, this has been a power-granting provision. For example, the president says, listen, I have to faithfully execute the laws. That means I can fire whomever I want who cannot serve my cabinet, right? These are the removal power cases. 
We have a different situation here. The problem is not one of an energetic executive, to quote Hamilton, but a passive one, to quote Justice Scalia, my mock opinion. The problem here is that the president is not enforcing laws. Or more specifically, he decides to use discretion when it's really a decision to, un uh, to not enforce laws he doesn't like. So the briefs we argued for Cato in the district court, in the circuit court, and SCOTUS made this point in incrementally, increasingly good ways. Um, if we study the original understanding of the take care clause, the basis was one of good faith. We all study contract law. When you have two parties negotiating, there's an expectation that one party will fill the contract according to the other party's expectations. So when Congress passes a certain law, they have an expectation how it will be enforced. Now, be very clear, we are not saying that the president has to enforce immigration law 100%. That would be impossible uh, and probably unethical to instantly remove 14 million people. There's not enough money to do that in the world. I don't care how high the wall is, how high it goes, how deep it goes under. We are not getting rid of these people. It's impossible. There is only enough money to remove 400,000 people a year. But once you get past that, that straw man, this is the straw man that everyone raises. Once you get past that, OK, now we have to cut down to brass taxes. Is the policy of the president acting actually a way to conserve resources, or is he trying to bypass Congress that won't change the laws? And I think the facts show overwhelmingly, by the president's own words and deeds, that he is trying to subvert a law that Congress will not use. When his lawyers told him, here are the limits of your power, he said, no, 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 keep going, guys, keep going, go further. This is an instance where the president does not like the law and simply decides to pretend he's using discretion to get around it. This, as we've argued in our briefs, uh, violates the take care clause of the Constitution. Now, had this pan out in the actual litigation? Now, because the district court judge only ruled on uh, what's called procedural rules, right? Had to go through notice and comment. And the Court of Appeals only ruled on substantive grounds. No court has ever um, uh, addressed the constitutional issues. Um, although there was one question raised during the oral arguments that evoked Justice Jackson's decision in the steel seizure case, which is a personal favorite of mine. And you may recall that Justice Jackson um, uh, wrote that we have to see, is Congress and the president lining up? Okay? If the president is doing something exactly at odds with Congress, that's a good sign for us that this action is illegal. Um, as we argued in our brief at some length, we are in the lowest ebb of Jackson's framework. It's undisputable how low we are. Think about the chronology. President asked, I want you to change this law. Congress said, no. He said, OK, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to take action that are very similar and benefit the exact sorts of people who Congress would have changed the status quo for. If that weren't enough, afterwards, Congress even tried to defund DAPA. But guess what? This is like Keith Richards. It cannot be killed. This will go on forever. It is paid for by user fees. The people applying for DAPA pay for it. Even if Congress shut down Homeland Security, people upstairs going, woo, right? Even if they shut down Homeland Security, this thing would keep going on. The only way that this could have been stopped was through Texas's lawsuit. Texas brought a challenge saying, listen, as states, we are injured, right? This policy injures us. How? because we now have to grant driver's license to these aliens. And well, we have to pay money out of the state coffers. It's a small amount, but it's, it's, it's countable. You can count the amount of money. And because of that, they're standing. Were it not for Texas' lawsuit, this could have never been challenged. I think the fact that President announces two weeks after the election to save his vulnerable Democrats is even more odious. 
So at bottom, we have an egregious violation of separation of powers. I'm glad it was checked. So let's actually talk about the Supreme Court's decision here. Nothing. It was affirmed by an equally divided margin. We had four votes on one side, four on the other. The justices don't say who is who, but I think we can guess. The four conservatives, or, or the three, I don't know, Roberts and Kennedy, I don't know what the hell they are. But <laughs> Alito, Thomas, Kennedy, and Roberts are disturbed by this. They, they seem very, very upset. Um, Justice Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Kagan, and, and Breyer, um, they, 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 they don't, they're not bothered by it at all. So what happens? It affirms 4-4. What happens next? So what we would have thought would happen was a case would have been remanded to the district court down in Brownsville, which this all began. I was actually in Brownsville a few weeks ago for a hearing. Not so fast. The Obama Justice Department filed what's known as a motion for reconsideration. Was a motion for reconsideration. Asking the court, hey, can you guys take a look at him? Do you get Merrick Garland on there? Pretty much. So the case is actually still pending at the Supreme Court. There's not been a mandate back to the lower court. So in the event that we have Judge Garland confirmed, the court can say, OK, we'll grant you reconsideration. Don't worry about anything else. We'll hear this again in January and give Hillary Clinton our blessings. Um, the alternative, if, if President Trump wins and who the hell knows he picks, uh, the case can go a different direction. But, and what if a Republican wins? Ah, good point. <laughs> uh, are, we, are we counting Gary Johnson? Uh, what's worth Aleppo? I don't know where I am. So <laughs> shoot me. This is an awful year, my friends, awful year. Let's, let's look back to the time when Scalia was still here. So in, in, in summation, this case can go a lot of different directions. And I fear, and I expect, that they will never actually address the take care clause um, in its entirety. But we should be very careful about the role between non-enforcement and gridlock. And let me explain what I mean by that. This is actually a preview of my piece coming in the Harvard Law Review in a few months. When Congress refuses to change the law, it's very tempting for the president to say, OK, you know what? I'm simply not going to enforce this law. I'm not going to enforce it. I got discretion. I have all these bills and resources. Let's not enforce it. This makes Congress relevant. You cannot defund non-enforcement. When the president is not doing something, Congress can't stop him. And this is why I think you will see more and more litigation to bring these sorts of disputes into the forefront. Another one pending is the House Representatives lawsuit concerning illegal payments being made under Obamacare. Um, this problem is endemic, and regardless of whether uh, whoever wins, Republican, Democrat, fascist, whatever, whoever wins, uh, uh, the Supreme Court will have to confront this again. They punted here, but I suspect at some point they'll have to address the question square on. Thank you all so much for your attention. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Next, we'll hear from Hans von Spakovsky, who is a senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Hans also manages the think tank's election law reform initiative, and he's the co-author of Who's Counting? How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk. Before joining Heritage, Hans served as a member of the Federal Election Commission and worked at the Justice Department as counsel to the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights. He's a former vice chairman of the Fairfax County Electoral Board and a former member of the Virginia Advisory Board to the US Commission on Civil Rights. As you can see, he's the ideal person to explain the one person, one vote case, Evan Boyle well, uh, versus Abbott. Well, thanks to Ilya, and thanks to Cato Institute for inviting me. I realized too late as I was driving here this morning that uh, I should have worn my favorite pair of cowboy boots with my suit, because if you 
uh, haven't noticed it already, the, the common theme in all three of these cases is the involvement of the state of Texas. <laughs> you know, the immigration. Right. The immigration, the immigration case was Texas leading the charge uh, against the United States. Uh, the Fisher case was against the University of Texas in Austin. And Evanwell versus Abbott, uh, Greg Abbott is the current governor of the state, uh, was the attorney general, I think, when the case was originally filed and, and by coincidence, was my classmate at uh, the Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt School of Law. Now, I often get depressed at the bad decisions coming out of the U.S. Supreme Court. And um, I think it was two years ago, I was at a dinner where Justice Scalia was speaking, and someone actually asked him about that. And he said at the time that he thought that the term just ending was actually the worst term in his three decades on the court in terms of just terrible decisions from the court. And I have to say that I think the Evanwell versus Abbott decision uh, is another uh, example of that. Uh, let me give you a quick summary of what the case is about and, and then talk about how we got to this point. Uh, the Evanwell case is a redistricting case. And there's about a dozen lawyers in Washington, D.C., who make a fortune in redistricting cases after every uh, census on behalf of the Democratic and uh, Republican parties. And it's an area of the law that is uh, complex, confusing, and chaotic. But what was at issue in Evanwell was something the uh, U.S. Supreme Court had, ever, had never actually answered. And the question was, um, which population is it okay for a state to use when they are doing redistricting? Is it all right for them to use total population? Or should they use uh, voting age population? Or should they use the citizen voting age population? There's quite a difference between those um, different populations in terms of specifically people who are eligible to vote, people who are not eligible to vote, people who are citizens, people who are not citizens. Now, unfortunately, the court ruled that the use of total population does not violate the one person, one vote standard. And by doing that, the court basically deviated completely from the precedent it had set in decades' worth uh, of cases in which they had said that what one person, one vote means is that you can't weigh the votes differently of different individuals who were going to the polls to vote. Instead, they came up with this equal representation theory uh, that says that, quote, uh, all persons, whether or not they are eligible to vote, are entitled to equal representation in the legislature. What this means is that states can now significantly dilute the votes of citizens uh, by including large numbers of ineligible individuals, particularly non-citizens, uh, in redistricting, which allows them to manipulate and gerrymander districts even more, basically to the advantage of urban areas. So how did we get here? Well, as I said, as you know, every 10 years, we uh, redistrict in every state. Uh, that's actually a relatively recent phenomena. Uh, for uh, 150 years of our history, um, the court stayed out of redistricting fights, saying that that was a political question and the court should have no involvement in it. Uh, finally, in the early 1960s, uh, in Baker versus Carr, this is 1962, uh, this was a case involving the Tennessee legislature. 
Uh, Tennessee, like other states, such as Alabama, had not redistricted their state legislatures since the 1900 census. And the reason for that was, was very simple. Between 1900 and 1960, as you know, there was a big population shift in the United States from rural to urban areas. And if they redistricted based on, for example, the 1950 census, then the rural areas which control the state legislatures, particularly in areas of the South, uh, would lose con potential control because the power would shift to urban areas. Uh, additionally, uh, many of the states had um, uh, at least one of their houses having a system similar to the United States Senate. They had a county seat system in which uh, counties got a minimum number of representatives in one house of the legislature, no matter how small their rural populations were. But in Baker versus uh, Carr, uh, Justice William Brennan, uh, Brennan writing for the court held that allegations of a denial of equal uh, protection represent a judicial constitutional cause of action within the reach of the 14th Amendment. In Gray versus Sanders, a case about a year later, uh, the court said that a state's reapportionment in which they gave rural votes greater weight than urban votes was unconstitutional. And there's a quote there where they say, um, uh, if a state in a statewide election weighed the male vote more heavily than the female vote or the white vote more heavily than the Negro vote, none could successfully contend that that discrimination was allowable. How then can one person be given twice or 10 times the voting power of another because he lives in a rural area or because he lives in the smallest rural county? So you'll notice, again, all of the language in there is talking about equalizing the weight of a person's vote. Obviously, that person has to be a citizen. Obviously, that person has to be eligible to vote. Um, now, what's interesting about this is that the one person, one vote standard, while you know, I'm, I may agree with it in principle, uh, look, this is an artificial creation of the court. Uh, you can read the 14th Amendment, and there's nothing in there saying one, one person, one vote, or one man, one vote, which is the way the court referred to it back then. Uh, that's, just, that's not in the 14th Amendment. Also, the court over the years came up with this interesting dichotomy, which I, you can read the 14th Amendment from start to finish, and this certainly isn't in there. And the dichotomy is that the court has decided that when it comes to congressional redistricting, districts have to be as, as absolutely equal as possible. If you draw a congressional district that has 100,000 people in it, and you draw a second one in the same state that's got 101,000 people in it, you've got a viable case under the precedence that the court set out. However, the court said, well, we're going to treat state redistricting differently. In other words, when state legislatures are drawing up Senate and House of Representatives districts for their state legislature, we're going to give them up to a 10% leeway. A 10% deviation is okay. Now, they said they do that because, well, that allows the state to take into context um, state-specific rules on compactness, contiguity, all these kind of things in, in redistricting. But again, that's an artificial creation of the core. There's nothing in the 14th Amendment that says you can look at these kinds of redistricting differently. Now, what happened in Evanwell 
was that, and by the way, I should mention, because this is an important fact, um, after these decisions in the early 1960s, at least one, if not two, state houses was redrawn in almost every state in the country. And it caused a huge political shift and a big a transfer of power from rural areas to, to urban areas. So it had a very big effect. Now, Evanwell uh, is a case about two Texas voters who sued over the Texas legislature's redistricting of the state Senate districts. Why? Because the legislature, even though they had citizen uh, voting age population data available, instead they used total population. Now, that caused quite a distortion. Why? Texas, I think, has the second largest population of illegal aliens in the country. It's about, I think, 1.8 million out of 16 million citizens, about 10%. That's a very large number. And because the state legislature uses, used total population, um, Sue Evanwell and Edward Fenninger said that they lived in districts. There were upwards of, of approximately 50% in terms of deviation from the ideal. That meant that their vote was worth about half the vote of individuals in other districts with much larger numbers of, of people who are ineligible uh, to vote. And they said, if you look at the history of the case law, it's very clear that one person, one vote uh, relates to not devaluing the vote of eligible citizens uh, who are voting. Uh, the court basically, uh, in a, and like I said, a, just a terrible decision, um, threw out their claims, and unfortunately, the uh, remaining conservatives on the court and the people who are the half-time conservatives also agreed, and it was an eight-to-zero eight decision. Now, the decision was written by uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she said that uh, it was okay for the states to use total population based on the constitutional history, this court's decisions, and longstanding practice. Uh, there's a lot of problems with this. Judge Alito agreed in his concurrence with the outcome, but his, uh, his uh, concurrence is worth reading because he just shreds the constitutional history that Justice Ginsburg uh, puts in. Uh, pointing out all the mistakes and problems with, um, with what she does. Uh, for example, um, Ginsburg cites uh, James Madison in Federalist Number uh, 54 uh, as, as supporting the basis of representation in the House was to include all residents and that even non-voters were entitled to representation. And obviously, therefore, uh, uh, there should not be a problem with including total population in the states. Uh, but uh, Alito points out that when, when Justice Ginsburg has this quote from James Madison, she leaves out the second half of his quote. And if you look at the second half of his quote, it's very clear that um, Madison didn't believe that non-voters were entitled to representation, that federal apportionment was being based on total population simply because the qualifications for voting varied so much between the states. As you know, under the Constitution, the framers left the qualifications for voting. That's entirely up to the states. And they did not believe that the House of Representatives uh, should be dependent, that is, how many representatives a state gets, 
should be dependent on a particular state having the power to determine who its voters were going to be. And that's why the House situation is not analogous to redistricting within a state, which is what Ginsburg was trying to say. The other thing that's so interesting about that is that um, in the past, the court had completely rejected the idea of using how, what we do on a federal level and saying that's analogous to what's being done in the states. Because in those early cases that I was just talking about, um, Gray versus Sanders, Baker versus Carr, uh, uh, another case, Alabama, for example, made the argument that, okay, we'll agree that our state House of Representatives should be uh, redistricted, should be reapportioned, and should be based on population. But why can't our state Senate have uh, allow counties to have a, a, a minimum number of representatives, no matter their population, just the way the United States Senate entitles every state to at least two senators, no matter how small their population is? But the court refused to allow that and said, no, 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 both houses of a state legislature uh, have to be based uh, equally on population. In fact, there's a, there's a great line in there where uh, Alito talks about how it was uh, power politics, not democratic theory, that carried the day with uh, the framers, and particularly with the 14th Amendment, and also says that uh, you can't use the federal analogy because if you did, the U.S. House of Representatives obviously violates the one-person, one-vote standard. Why? Because no matter how small your state is, Vermont, you know, Wyoming, North Dakota, you're still entitled to one House seat. And those House seats have a much smaller population than House seats uh, in other states. Um, you know, Justice Thomas uh, also concurred in the judgment. He's got great language in there in which he basically talks about how there really wasn't any basis, constitutional basis, for this one, one vote, one person principle that the court uh, came up with. Uh, but I think they went along with the liberals on the court because they view this as an artificial creation, but they didn't want to restrict the states even further in the choices they can make. The, the only really good thing about, oh, I should say one other thing that I thought was amusing was that the, uh, <laughs> the majority, Ginsburg, said, well, another reason we really uh, don't want to change this is it would interfere with the long-settled practices of the states in using total population. Well, that, that wasn't a problem for the court in the early 1960s when they completely changed the long-settled practices of the states with regard to, to apportionment. Um, is this a big deal? It, it is. Um, it wasn't a big deal in the 1960s because the illegal population in the country was not that large. Today it is. It's so large today that, uh, for example, um, uh, California's 34th district, that's downtown Los Angeles, only 41% of the residents there are actually U.S. citizens eligible to vote. El and eligible to vote. So if, in fact, you uh, forced states to only use citizen population, it could cause a major shift in political power in this country, similar to what happened in the early 1960s. Because actually, if you look at the data, the more citizens there are in a district, the greater the chances it'll be a Republican district. The fewer citizens, the greater chance it'll be in the Democratic district. The, the one final thing in the case was this. 
Texas asked the Supreme Court to rule on if the state decided to change from total population to using citizen population for doing its uh, redistricting, would that be constitutional? And the court refused to do that. Uh, as Alito said, uh, that's a very complicated issue, and we don't need a rule on that at this point, so we're not going to. The way to answer this problem is for state legislatures to start using citizen populations and therefore get what should be fundamentally fair districts as opposed to the kind of unfair districts that uh, Sue Evanwell uh, faced in Texas. Thanks. Um. Hans, is, is it so clear that it's, um, this was a Republican versus Democrat thing? Because, for example, um, in terms of racial or ethnic groups, I think blacks have the higher, highest percentage of uh, citizens of voting age. Uh, and then also in places like Utah, uh, moving to the standard that uh, the plaintiffs proposed would have benefited, I believe, the Democrats because it would have created more representation for uh, a childless more liberal uh, downtown Salt Lake City districts than suburban, more highly um, uh, underage uh, populations. No, no, no you, you are correct. I mean, the, in general, it probably would shift um, uh, a number of seats to Republicans, but there are many exceptions to this. And one of the reasons for that is that, for example, um, I think the citizenship rate of African Americans in this country is in the upper 90, 90 percentiles, whereas the citizenship rate of Hispanics in some places, for example, George is only about 60%. So uh, that can cause quite a conflict. Um, and and in, in redistricting cases, uh, I'll just tell a very quick story. When I was at the Justice Department, um, we kept getting inquiries about uh, uh, Hispanic groups in Los Angeles that wanted to file a Section 2 lawsuit over vote dilution. They, they believed they were entitled to another district. This was vehemently opposed by uh, African-American groups in that area because uh, that would have cut down the number of districts that they had. Uh, there really wasn't a case under Section 2, but that showed the conflict caused by this particular situation. All right, before I open it to questions, do uh, any of the panelists have any further thoughts about the, the other cases that they were discussed or are there the one for that matter that they, they were responsible for? I just have one quick thought. I, I'm fascinated that the... Um, option of an e-verify system, which I understand libertarians have, have some objections to, I think they're overdone, would actually cause a tremendous amount of self-deportation. It wouldn't get rid of all 14 million people, but it would really make an enormous dent. And I understand the politics are fatal. The Republicans want cheap labor and lots of it. They, they like having the illegals here. The Democrats love it because it helps them build their constituency, but I and think their walls. it would be, uh, <laughs> it would uh, really go a long way. If people really could not work, they would eventually leave. Yeah. And something else I wanted to mention, and, and this is in regard to the Fisher case. University. Before you go into that, let me just say one thing on E-Verify. The um, libertarian objections, I mean, even quite apart from uh, type one and type two errors, no system can be perfect, is uh, there's something fundamentally that strikes me uh, off about asking the government for permission to work. So that's where my, and I would say the, the most libertarians' objections to you verify lies. 
Uh, I just wanted to mention something that I, I, this isn't, you'll, you won't find this in the opinion, in the Fisher opinion, but I think this is a very important fact, and basically the courts just ignored this. And this was something actually that the Cato Institute did a great job of highlighting in its amicus brief. Throughout the entire litigation, and remember, the Fisher case went to the Supreme Court twice. Throughout the entire litigation, it wasn't until uh, towards the end of it that we discovered something that the university had lied about to the courts, and that is that they had a second, very secret admissions process that was used to get in um, uh, sons and daughters of well-connected politicians in the state of Texas who didn't meet the qualifications of the law school. And the only reason this came out was that one of the trustees of the school found out about it. They eventually hired an outside investigative firm to come in and do it. And yet in all of the the discovery, the, the questioning, the briefs, when the University of Texas was being asked about its admissions policy, it had never admitted that. That, to me, was bad faith. That should have resulted in sanctions against the university and its attorneys, and yet everyone just basically ignored it throughout the case. All right, I'm going to open this up for questions, and those in the virtual audience can tweet hashtag Cato Constitution. Uh, and I know the event staff is going to be a little mad at me because that's not the official hashtag we designed, but the official one is kind of confusing, so just use Cato Constitution a lot easier. Um, and uh, please wait to be called on. Uh, wait for the mic so everyone can hear, and please announce your name and affiliation, if any, and actually ask a question. Let's start right here. Hello, my name is Devin Watkins with the Cato Institute, and my question is for Professor Blackman. Um, I uh, let's assume that you're totally right on the meaning of the clause. My question is about the judicial enforcement of the clause. It seems to me that we're, it's well understood that you know Congress has the power of the purse and the executive has the power of the sword. Is it possible that the judges telling the, or ordering the executive to enforce the law against particular individuals especially could allow the justices to take the power of the sword and then not become the least dangerous branch. Uh, such a good question from Devin, who is a, a Cato associate and has some good work with us. The beauty of USV Texas is the president is not being compelled to do anything, right? No one's telling the president, deport this guy, deport that guy. All the order in USV Texas would say is, you cannot implement this policy of granting lawful presence. You don't have to remove anyone. You simply don't have, you can't give them lawful presence. That's why this case is unlike, I mean, imagine, um, you know, Marbury versus Madison, the old chestnut, right? Could Marshall have actually forced Jefferson to give off the commission to Marbury? Could he said, give it to him? Yeah, good luck with that. The beauty here is they're saying, you don't have to do something. You simply cannot do something that's illegal. And that's an order the courts give all the time. So this, I think, is a particular instance where the take care clause is justiciable. Not in all cases, but here it is. Thank you. Let's go right there. Um, My name is Stephen Shore. A question for Professor Wax. You've pointed out that the dropout rate of many minorities is significantly higher because they're unqualified. But does, and as, and as an argument against affirmative action, but isn't this logically an argument uh, for the affirmative action because it, on the rebound, it shows among those who, who cannot meet the, well, uh, do the work that they really didn't belong there in the first place. That the lesson of 
uh, meritocracy does get taught by to people who cannot do the work who were admitted uh, arguably without meeting the qualifications. So isn't this an argument? And any university would keep a, a, a record of this. So isn't this a, a potentially potent argument among those who, who cannot make it and their, their own families and communities uh, against affirmative action? Well, it, it should be an argument, but I think it hasn't worked out that way. It has failed to persuade. And I think the reason for that is that it is in the university's interest to have these students there anyway to satisfy all sorts of constituencies and to keep the peace. And when they drop out of physics or out of engineering or biochemistry, they're still there. They're just taking much softer, easier subjects. Uh, it's so easy to graduate from a so-called competitive university that uh, they don't flunk out. Uh, they just don't learn or they, they don't come out with the skills that uh, they might otherwise or otherwise could. And unfortunately, that doesn't come out of the university's hide. They don't really suffer for that. One would think that, uh, that minorities would care about that, but uh, you know, I cannot sit here and explain why they don't care about that. I think they have all sorts of, of explanations and rationales for why the university is, is biased against them or there are obstacles or the atmosphere is not conducive. I mean, there's, a, you know, there's sort of an excuse factory that, that never rests, as you know. So for some reason, uh, the argument doesn't work. Let's go right there. Hi, uh, Carl Golovin. Uh, my question has to do with what do we do when the government, by policy, doesn't enforce its laws? Uh, my perspective would be as a U.S. Customs agent, when Homeland Security was formed, I attended two weeks of cross-training in immigration law taught by a high-level INS attorney. I believe his last name was Cameron who taught that as soon as an illegal alien begins working under a duplicate or a social security number, social security administration is aware via their computers, either the number had never been assigned or was already in use by somebody else. But, but um, by policy, they wouldn't notify the employer until 30% of their employees were in that category, which is astonishing, really. The argument is that the 7.5%, um, whatever it is withholding, is really just kind of slavery light, and it it goes to paying the bottom line of uh, Social Security benefits to current Social Security participants. So what do we do when, by policy, entities like the Social Security Administration don't enforce their own laws? Um, I'll, I'll take that one. Um, I, I've learned a lot about immigration the past couple of years, and the general sense is there are so many competing interests that have no interest in enforcing immigration laws. It, it's simply across the board whether it's for humanitarian reasons, businesses like it, the chamber loves immigrants that are they're not here legally because they can pay them lower wages. Um, I think there's so many reasons why immigration laws aren't enforced. Um, the sole perspective that I offer is the president has balance of how that discretion can be exercised. And the decision to grant lawful presence to 5 million aliens cannot be consistent with his duty to faithfully execute the laws of the United States. Amy Hudson. Can I comment on this? Yeah. I, you know, I often tell my students the ultimate check is politics. If, if the government wants to brazenly abuse their power, 
at the end of the day, there's not a whole lot we can do about it. I, I don't want to sound partisan here, but as long as we keep electing Democrats, these abuses will continue. Not partisan at all. Will. Uh, I mean, that's going to happen. They're getting away with it, and they're going to they're gonna do it more and more and more. So it's ultimately a matter of, you know, who's in power. Can, can I, since we're all chiming in? Look, the... It's, it's very tough to go up against a president who's willing to abuse his authority. And that includes not enforcing the law. And while it's certainly true that prosecutors have uh, prosecutorial discretion, uh, this administration has turned that on its head. Prosecutorial discretion means that you generally enforce the law, but you may decide in a specific case, based on the circumstances, not to uh, engage in a prosecution for that particular individual. It does not mean that you have a general license to not enforce a law at all, but you may occasionally enforce it against a particular person. Look, the only real power that, that Congress has is the power of the purse. And the way for the House of Representatives, for example, to punish the administration for any of these uh, immigration uh, issues is to make specific cuts in specific departments uh, and do things that will really make the bureaucracy there and the political leadership hurt. I mean, for example, uh, you want to give the, uh, the attorney general a message that entirely cut out her travel budget out of the Andy funding Bill for the, the Justice that Department. Way. But that takes, that takes a House of Representatives who's willing and able to actually use the budget process the way constitutionally they're supposed to. And we really haven't seen that for a very long time. Let's go up there. John Vecchioni from the Cause of Action Institute. And I guess I'll direct this question uh, to Mr. Blackman, but anyone can- Put your mic closer. Yeah. But anyone can chime in. Um, both two of these cases have the problem of uh, falsehood to the court. We heard one falsehood to the court about what their admission system really was at the university, but also in the immigration matter, the Justice Department was being sanctioned. for It, 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 was, it was worse than in uh, this, the steel seizure case because the court had entered an injunction, Congress had said no, and they still went ahead and, di and did it. And my question is this, is there something about this, this willingness to go against the law that is, that is maybe corrupting even the process when you have lawyers who are uh, in two pretty big cases not telling the truth? I mean, is that a coincidence in this matter or is it being driven partly by the willing to throw away rules? Uh, thank you for the question. So the Office of Legal Counsel, these are the constitutional advisors to the president, they've long been considered as an institutional check. And as we saw during the Bush administration, that check uh, uh, operated in the function that people weren't too happy with, with a number of torture memos and otherwise. Um, that trend of the OLC being you know, questionable has gone out the window during the Obama years. In case after case, OLC has said no, and the president asked for a second opinion. Um, the most classic example is Libya. Um, here's a situation where the DOD general counsel said, no, you cannot stay in Libya beyond 60 days. The president then asked OLC. OLC said, no, we agree with DOD. 
So what did the president do? He got a second opinion from Harold Coe, the law school dean at Yale, who was serving as Hillary Clinton's legal advisor, and they gave him a memo that said, yeah, you can do this. Bombing Libya is not actually hostilities. Um, once you start saying that you're not going to adhere to what your lawyers tell you and say, no, no, go further, second opinion, it's a charade. Um, president Obama was on the Colbert Report a couple of years ago. Where he said with a straight face, I listen to OLC. They are my lawyers. I don't go beyond what they tell me. It's sophistry. So once the president decides in his own head and heart that I have this power, um, there is no check. And so long as these actions are taken without standing because no one's injured, the courts had no check. That's why I think the USB Texas case was so important because we got a judicial resolution. And oh, by the way, as he said, they were actually giving out a deferred action license to people who should not have been getting them in violation of a federal injunction. Uh, they could have been held in contempt of court. And I'm surprised they actually weren't. Right here, and for any of you suffering from uh, Ilya confusion, this is the other Ilya, Ilya Soman. So he's the smart one, I'm the funny one, that's how you distinguish that. Uh, and Ilya actually uh, uh, wants to enforce limits on executive power everywhere except immigration. I imagine that's what his question will be about. Uh, it's a pot, well, uh, I could have asked about immigration, but since Josh and I actually debated this issue just yesterday, I think I'm gonna pick on Hans von Spakovsky this is the rare oh. instance where Cato has three cases on a panel, and I disagree with the Cato position on two out of three. Uh, so I'll direct my question to Hans. He's rarely wrong that often. Uh, and I'm not wrong that often this time either. Uh, <laughs> uh, but returning to Hans, uh, although Ilya and I could go back and forth like this for some time, but I'm not going to abuse my executive power of the floor here, and instead uh, I'll ask a question to Hans. Or is purely is delegated by the moderator and can be, <laughs> can be retrieved at any moment. Anyway. The moderator will not always display appropriate moderation, but I hope he will for the next minute or two. Uh, so my question to you, Hans, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if I understand you correctly, it doesn't seem like you disagree with Thomas's argument in his concurrence that, uh, in fact, one person, one vote has no basis in the text or original meaning of the 14th Amendment or even in Supreme Court precedent prior to the 1960s. If that is the case, why would you want to make this bogus made-up principle more restrictive of the state's powers than it would be before? Why not at least give the state a wide range of options within one person, one vote? Because there are more options actually even just the two that you mentioned in your, present in your presentation besides uh, doing it eligible voters versus total population. You can also have total citizen population. You can have total legal population. There are several other options that you could have. So it seems to me if this principle is dubious to begin with, uh, why extend it as opposed to constrain it, which is what Alito, Thomas, and the other conservatives on the court wanted to do. Uh, so it seems to me that uh, if Baker versus Carr is wrong from the get-go, at least make its impact more limited as opposed to double down on the error by making it more restrictive? Well, that's a good question. Uh, but I think the problem is, is that while we can debate or argue about the creation of this doctrine, one person, one vote, it's the law. It's not going to get overturned, and we have to work with it the way, the way it is. And the way progressives and others want to use it is as a one-way ratchet. And this was something I didn't mention in, in my talk, but um, there were all these really deceitful briefs filed saying, well, even if, you, even if the court wanted to say that you should use citizen population, why well, you really can't do it because the, the data isn't good enough to do that. Well, that is an outright lie. And in fact, uh, the U.S. Justice Department where I worked for four years doing voting cases, 
uh, any time they had any case involving a claim of dilution of the voting power of, of uh, racial minorities, they always used citizen voting age population to determine what the remedy should be. And this is in, you can see this in case after case after case. So they understand the importance of this, but uh, they don't want to make this a mandatory rule because they understand that it may cause them a loss in political power. And the thing is, um, if you're going to um, if you're going to stay with the way this rule was uh, put forth, the way it was uh, explained by the court, the court has always said uh, it prevents dilution of the weight of voters, not everyone in general, not illegal aliens who are here. So if you're going to have this rule in place, then let's, let's shape it so that it is a fundamentally fair rule for citizen voters. Uh, Joel Mandelman, I wanted to ask uh, Mr. Von Spakovsky, in light of the ruling in the Texas case, has the Texas legislature made any effort to take advantage of the possible opening? Not, 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 not that I'm aware of, no. Is anybody trying anywhere else? We'll, we'll have to wait for the 2020 uh, census and further redistricting, I think. Yeah. Hi, my name is uh, Joseph Lopez. I'm a student at uh, National University all the way in San Diego. Um, my professor is, oh, excuse me. Whoa, professor. <laughs> my question is for uh, Professor Wax. Um, it's actually a two-part question for you and for everybody else on the panel. Um, as far as affirmative action goes, um, in my previous life, I was a 14-year veteran of the U.S. Navy. And uh, when you're talking about the initial test to get in and know exactly what you're talking about. It's a pretty lengthy process and it's a long test. But um, do you believe that affirmative action, do you believe that affirmative action is actually uh, becoming more of a problem now than what it was maybe about a decade ago? And as far as immigration, do we see a paradigm shift from the view of what the courts had maybe about a decade, decade ago in previous administrations? Whether it's more of a problem now than in the past is really a hard question to answer because it depends on, on so many parameters. I, I think that it is more of a problem now in the following sense. I think, first of all, the monoculture, the, the kind of overweening arrogance of the people in charge is so complete uh, that dissenting voices and dissenting information uh, is just, it's shut out. I mean, it, it just doesn't even enter into the debate. And, and there is a marginalization or even an ostracism that's operating against people who, you know, are questioning some of its tenets. The second is, I think that it's emblematic of, and it's sort of a symptom of what Charles Murray has documented, the, the separation and the isolation of the classes by education mainly, by income. We've, we've hunkered down into our own little uh, monocultures and, and groups where uh, 
people, I think, with, with competitive Ivy League or exclusive educations really have absolutely no clue of what is going on with minorities overall or in you know, other classes, other parts of the country, unless they are you know, engaged specifically in their job. And even then, they seem oblivious, because I've talked to a lot of these people. Uh, that there is a tremendous crisis of basic skills, both soft and hard, of work ethic, of, of socialization, of, of, of academic and scholastic basics that is so much bigger than who gets into Harvard. Uh since you, you, you asked for a response from some of the other folks, too. Let, let me just say two things about that. I actually think it is a greater problem today for this reason. Look, there's a series of lawsuits ongoing right now by Asian-American students who are suing uh, uh, universities with racial preferences, because that's what we're talking about, not affirmative action. We're talking about racial preferences in admissions. And why is that? Because uh, schools like Harvard and elsewhere because Asian-American students do very well and have very good credentials and qualifications. A lot of these uh, uh, universities, it is alleged, have put in uh, quota factors similar to the way they um, wouldn't allow more than a certain number of Jewish students in in the 1920s and 1930s at places like Princeton and Harvard. And because too many Asian-Americans do too well, uh, the, the, the idea is that these universities are saying, no matter how good you are, you're not going to get in because you've, you've uh, met our number. That, to me, is just fundamentally un-American. And it's just terrible. I mean, it, it's, just, it's just terrible that these universities are doing this, and they think there's nothing wrong with it. I want to just want to add something. Once again, I'm not denigrating the importance of litigation or the courts, but ultimately, this is only going to stop when Asian Americans object as a matter of politics, right? Ultimately, it's about power. Uh, and I don't see that happening. I think, you know, apart from these small lawsuits, Asians are putting their heads down and going along with it. And, you know, I don't know what the future will bring. All right, maybe one more question. There's a hand way in the back up there. Thanks for your time. Uh, my name is Jack. I'm currently a student in the Washington semester program through American University. Uh, I attend Emory University where I'll be returning in the spring. Uh, my question is also for Professor Wax. I tend to see that in, in a school, um, at, at my school specifically, we have a, a large degree of affirmative action and there is a lot of diversity on campus. But I don't really tend to see a lot of the practical benefits of it because once we actually get to, uh, besides classroom, besides in the classroom setting, there's a large degree of almost natural uh, or self-imposed segregation between students hanging out with different cliques and different people that tend to be most similar to themselves. So I guess my question is, how are these practical benefits of affirmative action actually achieves when the universities don't seem to be tending to do much once they actually bring a bunch of students from different backgrounds together in different settings? Well, I think that's one of the problems, and it goes to the vagueness of the supposed benefits, the pedagogical benefits of diversity and what is actually supposed to be gained. I mean, nobody is against 
the natural diversity that is going to occur in our institutions just because we have a very diverse population in the United States of America. Here we're talking about engineered diversity, uh, the pre preferences, the very strong racial preferences that are not being, now being used. Affirmative action has long since ceased to be a tiebreaker of any kind uh, in any important context. But really the point I wanna make just briefly is you know, the, the universities can, in the teeth of this kind of internal segregation and separation and all the tumult and conflict that has occurred on campus say it's still a good thing, it's still beneficial, it has positive effects without ever having to designate them, specify them, or measure them. On another note, I'll just uh, mention that if anyone's further interested in the so-called federal analogy in one-person, one-vote districting and uh, Justice Ginsburg's misuse of the Federalist Papers and Madison's writings, uh, I have an article with Thomas Berry in uh, the Federalist Society Review, the, the newly renamed uh, Federalist Society Journal, so you can look it up there. Anyway, uh, let's thank our panelists.